From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The time for mock drafts and punditry has finally come to an end. As the NFL draft gets underway in Kansas City on Thursday and we'll finally have the answer to the burning question, where will Anthony Richardson be headed next and will he make Gator history in the process? On today's show, we'll fire up the roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gator Sean Kelly to discuss where AR could and should land the other Gators whose names are likely to be called, football subtractions via the transfer portal, baseball and softball feeling the blues, a long-anticipated SEC championship for men's golf, and possible solutions to prevent fans from storming the field in the PAT. Then, men's golf coach J.C. Deacon joins us to discuss his path to Gainesville, his favorite golf movies, and of course, his team's remarkable breakthrough last weekend. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet healthcare destination, with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Our roundtable is up and running, and we are going to start with the NFL draft. All eyes are on the Carolina Panthers, what they're going to do with that number one pick. Some have floated. It could be Anthony Richardson in the time since that was the hot rumor. Seems like it's faded a bit now. The action is on Bryce Young. But wait, there's some late movement in Vegas, apparently, on Will Levis. So there's a lot of quarterbacks in discussion. It's, you know, Anthony Richardson even being in it is the first time a Gator quarterback has been in that discussion, certainly in in my lifetime. Um, What are we expecting to see in this NFL draft and where do we anticipate Anthony is going to go off the board? Well, uh, you know, it depends on what hour you're talking about, Adam, as we as we record this. I mean, latest projection I've seen is Seattle at number five. Uh, that's from a Todd McShay at ESPN, which you know he's he's one of the more reliable guys as a as the draft pundits go. And but it it really is a guessing game. What we know is that Anthony Richardson, uh, Will Levis, Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, and even Hendon Hooker's getting a lot of late love here. So it's a heavy first round of possible quarterbacks. And Anthony Richardson, I mean, I'll be very surprised if he if he doesn't go into top 10 picks and I still think there's a chance for him to you know match Steve Spurrier as the highest uh, drafted quarterback in Florida history at number three overall Uh, he could go in those top three draft uh, picks but the latest buzz has you know Carolina kind of locked in on Bryce Young and that that seems to be the direction they're going but you guys know how the draft works you've seen it there's a lot of uh, a lot of smoke and mirrors being used right now and uh when you have all these players from the same position group, obviously the, the most important position in the game at quarterback, uh, it, it really is going to be fascinating to see what teams do. If their guy that they really wanted gets picked, maybe unexpectedly did they start a flurry of trading down to 
to uh, see how that works. Uh, but Anthony Richardson's, you know, from where he was a year ago at this time, going into his first year as a college starting quarterback to where we're talking about him today. I mean, it is a remarkable story in a lot of ways. And it's not so much to do with the kind of season he had with the Gators, obviously. It's just more about what he brings uh, to the table as a potential NFL quarterback. And, and the scouts, as we all knew they would in the process, they fell in love with Anthony's skill set. I mean, the arm, the speed, the size. And it's just going to be really interesting to not only see where he goes, but what he does once he gets there. Because I think as much as anything with him and his position, he's got to go somewhere I think that's going to allow him a little time uh, to develop. But, but, you know, I don't know if the, the NFL teams are looking at it that way. We'll find out soon enough. It's interesting. In my time in the NFL, I learned a few things, one of which is this week, every year, everybody's lying okay so be careful what you read and what you hear it's it's it uh, smoke and mirrors is what scott used I'll, I'll just say misinformation at this point or deflect 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 um i i, I like the if if anthony goes to seattle i've said all along i i think that's a really good thing for anthony richardson because geno smith's there and he doesn't have to be the guy right away and i i felt all along that that is going to be kind of one of the keys to his success at the next level. It's interesting. Billy Napier said uh, either in an interview, I guess it was an interview. It might've been with Sirius XM and and forgive me if it's wrong, but he said recently that back in December when Anthony was trying to make his decision, he got a first round grade from 10 of the 32 teams. And it's been, at least for me, it's been entertaining or interesting to watch him go from say 10 first round grades to put in together just a really, really solid draft process. And now we're having this conversation that might have him going in the top 10. And I, I just, I find that to be a cool thing to watch an exciting thing for Anthony Richardson and for the Gators too. Um, you know, and then the other side note I have about the draft that intrigues me is uh, what team is going to be smart enough to go ahead and draft Osiris Torrance, because that is going to be a double digit year NFL guy, knock on wood, if he stays healthy, um, that is a, you know, I think a, a slam dunk pick for somebody. I'll be curious to see who will be willing to go high enough to grab him and make sure they secure him or sees that as a true need, you know, as a possible NFL guard, which isn't the sexiest pick at all. But, man, just there's some linemen that come along that just you got to be smart enough to take that guy because that position so important in a game now that is all about affecting or protecting a quarterback. And so – uh, to me, those are the two things that I'll be more intrigued by than anything else this week. Well, with respect to a high draft pick and obviously the what's anticipated for Anthony, I mean, you know, this this we're not giving away any clues here, but if, if you're drafted in the top ten, you're probably a bad team unless you got someone's <laughs> pick, which is the case. So when I used to, when I cover the Bucks, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, say I remember writing these stories about about high draft picks for the the Buccaneers. Uh, for 14 straight years, had double-digit losing seasons, uh, set an NFL record for that. And every year they'd be drafted in the top 10, a lot of time in the top five. And what they always used to say, I mean, the, the fans would go absolutely nuts. You know, this is guy, the expectations for the player are completely unrealistic, and it's tenfold if it's a quarterback, okay? And to, to Sean's point, Wherever he goes, and I'm looking at it's Carolina, it's Houston, it's Arizona. He's not going there, obviously. Indianapolis, Seattle. They, 
I don't care if Treon Harris is the starting quarterback <laughs> one of those places. Anthony Richardson should not play any meaningful snaps until the season is out of the way for those teams. I'm talking about November, December, because last year we, we also saw the Utah victory and what that did for Anthony Richardson's expectations. I mean, we wrote about it that day. Uh, I'm sure Sean talked about it that day. All the Heisman hype seemed real at the time. Okay. And then as the season went on, you know, we realized what, who Anthony was and what was around him also. So, um, Wherever he goes in the show, he, he needs to do a lot of watching. Uh, Billy Napier is told on his uh, – he talks about on his uh, on his current Gator Club rotation, when he inherited – Anthony Richardson was a quarterback who had played about 170 snaps in his career. Now, he played a season's worth last year around a team that was a lot less talented than the one, I believe, the year before in Dan Mullins last season, especially when it came to the wide receiver position. So uh, uh, wherever he goes, he's got to do a lot of sitting – um, soak it in, stand on the sidelines, listen to game, listen to watch games develop, look what defenses are doing and that kind of thing. And he's gotten incredible marks in terms of his football uh, IQ and acumen uh, so far in these one-on-one tests. So he has set himself up very nicely. Now he just can't be accelerated through the process. I, th- I think that would be a detriment to him. Um, if, if, if he was thrown into the fire and he succeeded, I know we would all be happy. I just don't think that's the best situation for Anthony Richardson right now. Um, that's funny. I saw Peter King's mock draft. He hasn't fallen all the way to 24 to the wow. uh, Vikings, I believe, uh, in Kirk Cousins last season under contract. I don't really see that happening, but it's just that that's a good example of the spectrum of, and the polarization of, of what kind of a, a, a prospect he is. Mm. You know, it's interesting about that. If if that were to come to pass, um, that would be right about where where Tim Tebow was drafted. And while Tim Tebow was a guy who had an incredible college resume, but questions about how it would translate, it would be the inverse. Richardson's a guy whose track record isn't great, but projects so highly. So if he were to fall that far, it's, I mean, the last Gator quarterback that was even in disgust as a first round pick was Tim Tebow. And given that that was about 15 years ago, it does say something about the struggles Florida's had at that position in that time. So it's definitely going to be interesting to watch. I am curious, you mentioned, Sean, some of the, uh, specifically Osiris Torrance. I'm curious what other names of Gators might be called. And these guys, thanks to Anthony Richardson, had a lot of eyes looking at him on pro day at the Combine. So I wonder if, if Richardson is the tie that lifts some, some fellow Gator boats. Yeah, I don't doubt there'll be other Gators that get drafted, but certainly that's going to be a Friday-Saturday thing for sure. I, I, I couldn't even speculate because that, that'd be so deep in the draft. I, I couldn't even speculate where, say, a Javon Dexter or somebody like that would end up going uh, in this draft. I, I, I think there's some pros in there, but certainly not, not the two names that we've already mentioned. I've seen Javon Dexter show up in third rounds, and he did himself he did himself a good job at the, at the Combine, I think, to uh... – work himself into into those situations. I, I'm not sure, just telling it like this, I'm not sure he played like a third-round draft pick last season. But, again, a lot of that had to do with what was around him. And, again, it's it, it's, a, it's it's all about fit. If he gets into a place where he's got some good dudes, especially in the third round, he could go to a decent team, got some dudes around him, I bet he could be a very, very, very productive player as long as he's not considered the guy, you know, in that kind of situation. Yeah, I think there's three definite picks in Richardson, Torrance, and, and then uh, – Dexter. And after that, I think the most likely, Ventro uh, Miller or Justin Shorter, both of those guys have a chance to get drafted. Uh, 
I don't know, you know, they're like Sean and Chris talked about, they're going to be later round guys. And then I think your, your safeties and Trey Dean and, and Rashad Torrance, to me, they're more like a last round uh, undrafted free agent guys from what I've read and gathered. And, uh, but you special know, team, Florida, special, special team guys. Yeah, special definitely team play guys. a lot of special teams. Yes. Yeah. And then the other one who has a chance is offensive lineman, Richard Garage. I mean, he's, he's got a, a big body. He had a good career at Florida. I think he'll definitely find his place into a, a mini camp, a rookie mini camp. I don't know if it's going to be through the draft or not, but like I said, three for sure draft picks and then five or six guys just to watch them those last two days. So we'll see how it all shakes out. Certainly it'll be interesting to discuss next week when all of the chips fall and we can look at the situations for each of the Gators that, that do land somewhere. Um, that's also part of the discussion with the current team, with Billy Napier as the transfer portal is in heavy rotation right now. I saw, I think, uh, was the number 67 out of 82 scholarship players from Colorado have have left the team since the young came, which is, I mean, talk about remaking a team. Those are basketball percentages of roster turnover, but on a roster about five, six times as big. So that's wild. Uh, when it comes to the Gators, I'd say a couple of surprises this past week on Antoine Powell Ryland Jr. leaving, and then maybe most surprisingly, Xavier Henderson, who had a great spring game and looked like he was in a position to be the guy. Um, you know, we never know all of what's going on behind the scenes, but I think what what's made the transfer portal most unique is that in the past, guys that transferred were almost exclusively ones that were not getting the playing time they thought they should have. Now, seemingly anybody can end up in the portal, no matter how well they've done at their current school. The amount of tampering that's going on right now is is alarming, to say the least. Um, and let me just start with this comment that I think the second transfer portal is ludicrous. I, I just think that we all now view the new football season to start basically when spring practice begins. And we're looking at the, the football year, if you will. Uh, and so to have now free agency all over again at this stage, a third of the way into the program's year, uh, it, it, it's just, I just find it to be absolutely silly, but that's just me and my personal opinion because some teams are going to benefit from this. Some young student athletes are going to also benefit from a fresh start. But Adam, your point is well taken. And I think it maybe is the most important thing in trying to get your arms around this, look at it through a lens. You're right. It used to be a playing time situation. There are certainly the very valid exceptions of this isn't the place for me as far as my personality or my mental well-being goes. That always has to be, I guess, kept in mind. But now it's Am I getting money here? Am I not getting money here? Um, right. All those things now have changed the prism as to which to view this through. So, look, I like the transfer portal. I like more leverage for the players. But to have this now a second transfer portal or at this point in the uh, in the football calendar, I just it just whacks me out a little bit. I mean, I saw something today. There's a Notre Dame quarterback going to the portal. <laughs> it's just really, really strange to think about this when – these, if we're, if we're talking about student athletes, and I know that's a difficult conversation for some, we should be watching most now programs wrapping up their spring practices and getting ready for final exams to finish the last academic semester that counts toward their eligibility coming for the next football season. Remember, it's not the classes you're in during the season, it's the semester beforehand that 
is has an impact upon your eligibility and, of course, your academic progress. Well, I read earlier today, guys, I think there's over 1,300 players in the transfer wow. portal right now, which, you know, I'm, I'm with Sean in the fact that I – I think this second transfer portal in the spring, it's a little bit of an overkill. Uh, I've read a, you know, a great story on this one kid from a, he visited Louisville this week. He just finished spring football with Virginia and went back into the transfer portal after he just transferred from North Carolina after last season. So he's a, he's visiting his, uh, you know, he, he could be on three schools in three months here if, if this mm. falls through. And that's just, you know, it's, it's become too common I'm all for player empowerment. Um, I'm glad that they have these options, but I do think you're starting to hear kind of a, a some noise in the background from uh, people in the game, coaches on down, administrators that okay, this is a little bit out of control. So now it's really going to be a decision for the powers that be. I mean, because this is obviously moving more toward a professional model of free agency, essentially. Uh, so you do you. Do you just limit that one-time transfer after the season, or do we keep this window open that they, you know, opened in recent years? So uh, we're going to see some movement there, one way or the other. But it's definitely uh, something to it has taken time to get used to. But specifically with the Gators, you mentioned the two guys with Xavier Henderson and Antoine Rollin. I wasn't really surprised at all by Antoine Rollin, who really came in and has done a nice job developing as a, a contributor last year. Started five games, but you know, he's definitely undersized for the SEC, and I think Austin Armstrong, who, again, guys, turn, when you when you play one of his press conferences, don't watch it. Just turn your chair around and listen to him. I mean, this guy is Kirby Smart 2.0, the way he talks football, and he knows the SEC. He knows you got to have big bodies at the edge rusher. So he, they had J.T. Searcy and Jack Pyburn really come on in the spring. I think that just kind of – left Ryland Powell out because he was going to play behind Prince Luma Milan either way. So, you know, good luck to him. And then Xavier Henderson, I think, caught a lot of people by surprise. Uh, so, you know, he hasn't really said why he's transferred. He obviously led the Gators last year in receptions. Uh, he was kind of, you know, Anthony Richardson, the uh, safety receiver in a lot of ways. And he was going to start on the outside. So now, fortunately for the Gators, there's a lot of receivers out there in the transfer portal to pick <laughs> yeah. from. Yeah. So it's... so while you hate to lose a veteran guy like Xavier Henderson at this time of year, the good news is there are a lot of players who are similar experience or production as well who are available now. So I'm sure that they've been working the, the transfer portal hard the last couple of days. So by the time we convene next week, who knows what else will happen in the portal. Maybe some incoming news to announce, uh, which we certainly hope to be able to do. And, and no more of these surprising losses because they, they give a lot of fans heartburn, as we well know, on, uh, on social media especially. Speaking of, of heartburn, uh, a lot of that on social media around baseball and softball after really challenging weekends on the road. Both teams get swept. Both teams in position to win games in the series at some point. Uh, that just completely went up in smoke almost universally because of pitching on both sides. So let, let's start with baseball. Um, you know, not certainly anybody was hoping for. The suspension didn't help. But where does this leave the Gators, I guess, mentally especially, uh, trying to move past this and, and reclaim their status as one of the top teams in the country? Well, they're still number four in the country. Um, and I hope that this doesn't affect their mental well-being because it's 
three games out of the 50-plus that they'll play in the regular season. So, look, no, it was not a good weekend up in South Carolina. And it was interesting that the Gators obviously didn't help themselves. The walks are killing Florida right now. Um, but at the same time, this was the first time that they didn't play well and the other team played well against them. I mean, Florida's offense, which has been in the top five in the country all season long, got pitched to by a very good South Carolina staff. Um, and they're going to see more of that here in the coming weeks. Um, but for that offense to just never really um, get going, and some of that has to do with how South Carolina played. South Carolina played basically mistake-free throughout the weekend. So, look, when you put yourself behind an eight ball like this against a top RPI team, by the way, Carolina's now number one RPI wow. uh, as of today's recording, um, you're going to have a problem like this, and it can and it can spiral out of control in one particular weekend. And look, when when you're a fan or you're um, with them every day type of situation, yeah, it seems like you know the walls are closing in. But it's a new week. You hopefully flush your worst week of the season behind you now, highlighted by the fact that your freshmen continue to produce. Luke Heyman and Cade Curlin are still a very big highlight of this team. Jack Caglione still leads the nation in home runs. He had one in the series. Uh, there's still a lot of positives. But, yes, the, the walks need to get cleaned up. Uh, they need to get Brandon Neely back into the fold here. And, uh, and you might have to sweep Missouri, which is very deal- doable at home this weekend, before you finish out the regular season with Texas A&M, Vanderbilt, and Kentucky. Uh, that is, um, that's enough to make your knees wobble a little bit. But I, I still think this was a – a very good Gators baseball team um, without going you know, too far down the rabbit hole here after a rough weekend. On the softball side, it's been a, a tough stretch. Obviously, they got swept to Tennessee and, and had some huge numbers put up on them after taking leads early uh, and then went to Florida State and dropped a midweek. And they're, they're coming to the end game now. Again, it, it runs two weeks ahead of baseball. So they're in a position, Chris, where uh, for the first time since Tim Walton arrived, they're in jeopardy of not hosting a regional. So it's, you know, it's late in the year and it doesn't seem like there's a lot they can do to change what they have, but just need to find a way to hold some leads. If you want to do good news, bad news, you could say that's the bad news. The good news is the Gators, I think, advanced to the College World Series last year on the road of a super regional, if I'm not Correct. mistaken, against uh, by beating a coming back from a game down against Virginia Tech. But uh, that has nothing to do, obviously, with this year. I mean, they went to Tennessee, and when Florida has really has really struggled this year, it's usually been because they haven't hit and they've gotten okay pitching, or they've gotten poor pitching and haven't hit. Game one, they lost nine to one. And you, you're not going to believe this, but the one run came on a Skylar Wallace home run. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. uh, she, Skylar hit a home run in every game. She's she's hitting like 576, I think, in SEC play. You're wow. supposed to go down, which is 100 points higher than she is overall. You're supposed to go the other direction once SEC play starts. I mean, she is having just a phenomenal, phenomenal year. I think she has eight hits over the last four games. Um, remember, she was 13 of 14 last week. Um but the Florida pitching staff gave up 30 runs against wow. a sixth-ranked team in the country, and they were facing a uh, pitching staff in Tennessee, which is the top five uh, pitching staff in the country relative to runs given up. I mean, if you if you you score 10 runs in a game, at, you know, in a, in a conference game, you expect to win that game. Florida lost that game 11 to 10. Uh, you know, they they were winning that game if I'm not mistaken, um, nine to three. Game three, they were up five to one, lost that game. So. Issues in the circle right now, Adam. Um, not issues with Skylar Wallace. Certainly, they they were able to 
you score, you know, 10 runs, you score seven or eight runs, uh, you know, you're supposed to be in, be in position to win games, but uh, uh, they got to figure out how to, how to minimize the damage um, from their pitching staff right now. And it's just, they only got so many out there and uh, <laughs> they got some good ones on the horizon. I can tell you that next season. But uh, right, right now, if Tim Walton's going to get back to the College World Series, they got they're going to fix some things with the Elizabeth Hyde's High Tower and and Riley Trilicek and uh, and the women that are uh, that are heading down in the circle right now. I want to talk about a sport we've rarely talked about on this podcast, but that is men's golf. And they had a, a really big milestone this past weekend. They won the SEC championship for the first time in over a decade, beat the number one team in the country in Vanderbilt to do it. Uh, guys, let, put, put this in context, this accomplishment for, for J.C. Deacon's team, um, which is, again, it's been one of those that's been on the rise for a few years, sort of in the way Brian Shelton led tennis up to where they ended up reaching a national title. Yeah, Adam, it was something that, they, like you said, they have been building for. I mean, J.C. Deacon uh, came in a few years ago, and that was his mission. And you could tell with his comments afterward that he, he knew it was time. Uh, I saw J.C. recently at a, a function here at UF, and uh, we were just talking off to the side. You can just tell how much he, he really likes this team. It's a it's a nice blend of, of your veterans like Ricky Castillo and John Dubois. And then you got uh, – you know, George Beyond. I mean, oh, shit, man, Beyondy. You got B- Fred Beyondy has really come on and had a great season. And then you had a, a, a former walk-on playing such a big role at the SEC Championships in Crest. So uh, they came through. They beat the number one team in the country, Vanderbilt. It was a total flip from what happened last year at the SEC Championships when Vanderbilt beat them in match play for the SEC tournament title. As the Florida flipped the uh, script this year and got the win and if you talk about a confidence boost at the right time of season, I think that's, again, not only did you win the SEC championship, but you beat the number one ranked team in the country to do it. So I think that's a perfect timing on their part. And now they hit the uh, the stretch to really the most critical part of the season and what they've been playing for. Uh, J.C. Deacon, I think, likes where they are right now. He's had some real, He's had some good teams in the past that – that have really struggled uh, once you got to the postseason, and and you know to taste that first SEC title, you could tell how much it meant to him. With all the people he was thanking afterwards, and mentioning you know Jeremy Foley taking a chance on this assistant coach from UNLV. So uh, it's almost like punch that punch that wall, punch that door down, and you were finally trying to get through because I I think they probably had better teams that didn't do that. Um, let's see what this version of the of JC Deacon's men's golf team can do in the region. And it's it's so golf is a crazy because they the region isn't for another three weeks. So we'll go three more weeks. We haven't talked golf all year. You're right. Uh, but we'll go three more weeks without even talking it after they win an SEC championship. So congratulations to them and stay tuned because we'll, we're talking to J.C. Deacon coming up right after the roundtable. Um, but before we wrap, I want to talk about our PAT this week, which was inspired by actually something that, that Scott shared in his, uh, his Gator Tidbits, which is the SEC's proposed solutions for ending the scourge of field and court stormings we saw a bunch of them last year. Um, some seemed warranted, others seemed ridiculous, but they've definitely become more common. And the the escalating fines of 50000 100000 250000 they clearly have not done very much to uh, to put an end to this behavior. And, and there's a goalpost at the bottom of the Tennessee River as a result of this happening. So my question for you guys is, 
how big of a problem do you think this is? And do you think that some of the potential proposed solutions, which include forfeiting the game that you just won, or potentially losing your next home game in the rivalry series, are those good measures, or do you think maybe they should try something different? It's interesting that the fines haven't worked because the people storming the courts are not the ones paying the fine. Sure. <laughs> so let's start with that. I, 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 I think it's going too far to say we're going to forfeit a game or you'll lose a home game in your schedule in the future. I, I don't know. Last time I checked, if um, someone streaks onto a field or runs onto a court, they find themselves criminally charged in the pokey. And if we have a court storming, if you really want to discourage this, you don't have to arrest everybody. But if you arrest enough people and criminally charge them for getting on the floor, I think you might find that to be a very good deterrent. Um, True. Look, there are some things that are uniquely hours in college sports, and I guess storming the court and celebrating with your fellow students would be one of them. But in a way, a lot of the, the way these arenas are configured now and in a different climate, well, this is a safety issue. And I think that probably they, they need to be serious about this um, for a lot of reasons that I just mentioned. Um, but yeah, I just think there's some other ways that we could deter this other than continually ramping up fines uh, that the people who are the culprits are not paying uh, and or then hurting players and teams that they have nothing to do with this. All they did was do what they're supposed to do, and that's win a game. So if there's criminal trespass laws in place, uh, enforce them. If they're not, make them. And, and that's just my two cents on it. How about a giant net like in Planet of the Apes? Will they just throw it all people and start dragging them <laughs> off, the, off the field? Haul them all in. <laughs> Yeah, Hall of Mellon. I tell you what, why, I, I don't understand this to some degree also. I mean, uh, the one at Tennessee last year, pretty epic, I think. A few years back, they had a store, uh, excuse me, a, a, a field storm at when Kentucky finally beat Florida. Um, I understand that. But didn't Florida State storm the field last year again for beating the 6-6 six and six Gators? Yeah. So did Vanderbilt. We, we had two of them last year. I mean, are you kidding I, and, I, and I do remember uh, the year before last, and, you know, I know this is the, the Gator Tales podcast, but excuse me, but we had, they had like 50 or 100 rowdy reptiles storm the court here when they beat Auburn here. Uh, and it was just this – it was a sad court storming by these fans. <laughs> I mean, it's just it, – it's and this is a place that's won, that won national championships, and, yeah. and, and I don't know what made them think that th – you know, yes, it was the second-ranked team in the country. It was the highest team to ever uh, – a Florida team had ever beaten at home. But, I mean, you know, it just it, it was just kind of sad to, to see. So so I see we, – we see too many of them, and there are ways I, – I really like Sean's. I mean, they're told not to go on the field. And decisions and consequences, my, my parents used to say. Um, by the way, I don't really want us to – characterize Vanderbilt as storming the field. I've, I've seen more chaos at Target at Christmas time. Um, so they, I think they filed, I think they filed single file out of the field and tiptoed across the sideline. It was pretty weak. So the Florida state one was definitely a, a little more of a real court stormy or a field storm than the, the Vanderbilt one. But yeah, it's, but why they were on their way to win 10 games last season. Well, right? I mean the, well, I don't know how many they won. They they Florida was six and five at the time. I think Florida State they were was six right and, there. They were six and six at the time of the court of the field storm. I'll tell you that. 
Because they had lost right? the game by that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, that's true, too. <laughs> that's true, too. But uh, yeah. bottom line is, fellas, I mean, I think both you guys and Adam, you all make valid points and everything. I'm of the belief that, okay, a good field storm, one swallow is not the end of the world. I can see why. A good one. You know, you, you do it, but there have been some in recent years where I think people are just doing it to maybe get a little camera time, to get a little selfie down on the court, to uh, put on their TikTok and Instagram, all that stuff. I think social media has actually uh, made the problem worse probably than it used to be. Although I'd love to go back on YouTube and once in a while I'll watch an old game with some, I mean, Go back and watch the end of the 1976 American League Championship Series when Chris Chambliss hits the walk-off home run against the Royals. You want to see a real field storm? That's a field storm. <laughs> uh, guys were running off the field to get out of there because people were trying to steal their helmets and bats and gloves. They were running for their life. So what we see in college sports is not quite the same as what we saw in the Bronx in 1976. But, you know, as the the voices of reason, you know, Sean and Chris said it is a safety issue. That's why we're talking about it. And I understand that completely. But a good old, you know, if, I don't know if a one in 10 team knocks off a 11 and one team. Hey, man, let them storm the field. The best court, sto- best court storm last year, Kansas State when they beat Kansas in basketball. I mean, yeah, that, that was a good one. They, they hadn't done, that. That was a good one. It was, I think, Keontae Johnson made a, a huge basket at the end of the game. That was one. I mean, that, that was a. Kansas State was a bad team last year. Beat the defending national champions. That was a warranted court storm. Uh, probably a little dangerous stuff, but, you know, their players are down there taking selfies of themselves. Uh, that one got a thumbs up, but Florida State over Florida. Come on, Knowles. A good way to, to put a cap on this is to uh, to note that there are only two SC schools that have never had a field storming in football. They are Florida and Alabama. So, it's actually a great way to antagonize other fan bases to note that, uh, you know, the smallness of they've done this thing. But, hey, we're too good for that. Um, but thankfully, you guys are not too good to be on this podcast and tell us what is going on in Gator Nation. So thank you for all the knowledge, as always, and we look forward to talking to you next week. See you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. When the Gators became the dominant program in the SEC back in the 90s, They did it thanks to sports across the board reaching the top of their game, from football to soccer, volleyball to men's basketball, and more. One sport they historically excelled in was men's golf, but in the mid-aughts, the program saw declining success and a lack of titles. In 2014, J.C. Deacon came on board to reinvigorate the program, and almost 10 years later, he helped deliver the team's first SEC championship since 2011 a feat he was still basking in when we spoke to him in the aftermath of the victory. I don't know why, and a lot of people look at me funny when I tell them, um, this is the tournament I wanted the most. And uh, there's just something about the SEC. It's it's on another level. Um, The competition is um, fierce. And the fact that we were able to beat those 13 teams um, over six rounds in championship conditions uh, is just so special. And Florida is obviously, I think that was our 260th SEC championship as an athletics program. And um, the fact that men's golf and, and our program was able to contribute to 
the rich history of success is it means a lot to me and um obviously extremely proud to be an SEC champion. You talk about the the bigger picture of how many SEC titles the program has won. Is that I mean is that really part of it because you know what the standard is that that you know the, the Gator standard so to speak and knowing that that you guys have added to that is it is it a lot about what's around you maybe more so than what's you know in another SEC town? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, I uh, I know we wouldn't have won without the coaching room that that I've been exposed to here at Florida. Um, you know, Roland Thornquist is my best friend in town. We spent a lot of time together, had a lot of phone calls with me, coaching coaching me through some tough times. Um, you know, I think back to Jeremy Foley and how much extra time he spent with me. Um, I know he's not our athletics director anymore, but uh, he's constantly on me. Um, about how we're doing things, um, making sure that we're keeping an edge. And, uh, you know, I can go down the list. You got Tim Walton, uh, Mary Wise, Jenny Rowland, Brian Shelton. Um, they've, they've all just been Mouse Holloway. They've just been such great friends and supporters. Becky Burley comes to mind um, and just helped me grow so much as a coach. I got this job when I was 31 years old and I was a hard worker. And I was very ambitious and I was willing to do anything to be great, but I didn't know how to go about it. And um, all of those people that I've mentioned have, have helped mold me um, into a coach that was was able to put a team together and um, was able to prepare them um, with the help of Dudley Hart, our incredible assistant, uh, to be ready to win a SEC championship. And, um, you know, without without all those people I mentioned, there's just there's just no way that happens. Yeah. And I want to get back to what's on the horizon for the team next. But at the moment, I want to roll things way back for you. Um, about about 40 years based on the the uh, the timeline you just stated. Can you tell us about the beginning, where you where you were born, where you grew up, your family and kind of the, the early days? Yeah. So born and raised in uh, Toronto, Canada, um, got an older brother, Jeff, and a younger sister, Jillian. Um, my mom and dad are probably two closest people to me in my life. Um, we are the five of us. Uh, just as tight knit family as you could ever imagine, and uh, we we go through all the ups and downs together. And um, so we had a had a really nice upbringing. My dad exposed me to the game, and uh, always always wanted to beat my brother in in any sport that we were playing growing up. So that I think that's where my competitiveness came from was him. Um, he just always pushed me. Never never would let me beat him in anything. So I had to work for. For everything I got growing up and um, he he created something inside of me for sure and uh, when I was 16 um, I was playing at a pretty high level of hockey and a high level of golf and my, you know I think my dad just he kind of looked into the future a little bit and said man I think you gotta gotta pick one avenue or the other and you know it doesn't matter to your mom and I but you know, if you're going to be really, truly great in something, you, you got to focus on it now. And I think he was bang on, you know, they let me play everything up to, to 16. And then he said, look, you got to, you got to focus on something. So he found a way to send me down to Florida. I went to St. Stephen's uh, in, in Sarasota, Bradenton uh, for my last two years of high school. So I was able to play and practice full time and got recruited by coach Dwayne Knight to play college golf at UNLV. And uh, I had a wonderful experience playing college golf. Uh, Ryan Moore, who's had a crazy successful uh, PGA Tour career, and, and Troy Denton, 
um, who's a PGA Tour coach for Will Zalatoris now. Um, those were my two roommates that I had in hmm. college. Uh, you know, so I was exposed to some more greatness there. And Coach Knight was my second dad. He um, was almost like a military guy. He's, he's very uh, strict and regimented in uh, time and being a good person. And he, he, you know, really helped me grow up as a man and helped me do a really high standard throughout my college career. And, and then I tried to play uh, professional golf for four years. Um, had a decent run, had some, some good times. Um, but I was just never, I was never at a PGA tour level. And, uh, in 2010, uh, I missed at the second stage of Q school by one shot, uh, wow. getting get to the final stage where I would have had some status on either the PGA tour or corn Ferry tour. I missed that by one shot. And I feel like that was kind of a sign. Um, and coach Knight called me that February and said, Deke, I love you and uh, I'm proud of you, but um, you're not making enough money playing golf. And I have an opening as my assistant coach here at UNLV, and I, I really think you should come and do it. And uh, he made me think about it for the weekend, and um, I I just thought he was right. Some something about the timing and and me trusting him, um, you know, it, it worked. And so I agreed to do that. And um, the first week into my job at UNLV, working for him. And watching what it was all about, I, I knew this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It, it was that quick. It's just you have a chance to to teach these young guys in in such a prime spot of their life so much, and not just about the game of golf, but off the course, in school, um, maybe helping them not make some of the mistakes that I made along the way. Uh, that maybe held me back from from being a professional golfer. But uh, I loved it. And, um, we got pretty good at UNLV. We made the match play at the national championship in 2012, I want to say, and, uh, made a really good run there. We lost to the host Georgia tech in a playoff, uh, Oliver Schneider Jans beat Kevin Penner. And, um, we got pretty close to winning a natty that year. And that's when I'm like, man, I, I really want to do this now. Like that was so much fun watching that team grow and being so close to, you know, that elite level. And uh, the job at Florida came open in the spring of 2014. Buddy Alexander, the, the legendary coach here, uh, was retiring. And I don't know what it was about that Gator logo. I, I, I wanted to play for Buddy. Um, it didn't quite work out just with the timing of their team. And I maybe probably wasn't quite good enough as a junior golfer. It was close, um, to be here, but, uh, uh, I always wanted to either play for Florida or be a part of Florida. I don't know what it was about that Gatorhead logo, but, uh, I wanted this job so bad. It just, as soon as this, they came open, I just, I don't know what it was. I, what am I going to do? How am I going to get that job? And, uh, I think I got my chance because the first AD I had at UNLV when I was his assistant coach was Jim Livengood. And Jim's a great man, longtime AD at Arizona. And he was very, very close with Jeremy Foley. And uh, I happened to be close through the game of golf uh, with Jim Livengood at the time. And uh, Jim said he would call Jeremy, and he did. And I think that's kind of what got me in the door for an interview. And when I came to Gainesville, met Mike Spiegler, uh, Kim Green, um, Mike Hill, Chip Howard, like it mm -hmm. just felt so right. And I remember going home to my fiance at the time, Jessica, 
and just told her, I, I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't get that job because that's where I want to be. I want, mm. I want to be in Gainesville. I want to be around those people. Um, that's where I'm meant to be. And I don't know how or what Jeremy saw in me at the time. I was the only assistant coach they'd interviewed. Uh, wow. I think uh, most of the other ones were established head coaches. And something he saw in me, uh, he, he gave me a chance. And I'll obviously never forget that. It was an opportunity of a lifetime and, and a responsibility that I've taken very seriously ever since. Um, he put his name on the line for me. And I've thought about that. I mean, I don't want to say every day, but pretty close to every day since I got that job is, you know, Jeremy put his butt on the line for me and I, I gotta, I gotta make this work. And, um, you know, it just, ever since then, it's been a crazy journey. This is, this is my ninth year and, mm -hmm. uh, the SEC and, and that championship's the pinnacle and it's, it's the pinnacle because it's so hard to win. And we have the best golf programs in the country in our conference. Uh, I believe we have the, some of the best coaches in the country in our conference. And, and to win this, you got to be uh, play at elite level for six days. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of preparation. And for us to be able to do that and be SEC champions is, is uh, it's a big deal. You said right from the outset when you started coaching, you, you just you knew it was for you. What about it clicked? Because, I mean, golf is a really hard game. I say this as someone who's quite bad at it. And I imagine it could be very frustrating to teach as well. What was it that you identified that you were good at about being a golf coach? Honestly, I think it was more the human part. Um, I just, like, I loved being around kids that age I, I was only 27 at the time they weren't that much younger than me um I was able to play golf with them pretty much every day coach Knight kind of gave me the freedom to be able to do that he wanted me to keep playing and, and stay competitive with the guys I I love that part of it but just you know saying hey dude like that's how I used to do things and, and this is how it turned out for me maybe you try and do it this way and mm. I think they really appreciated that, that I was, I, I had failed at what they were trying to do. Um, and they knew that, that I could help them and we just had a lot of fun. So I developed some, some really strong relationships with the kids. I remember our second year, uh, Carl Johnson and, and Kirk Kitayama, who's having a ton of success on the PGA tour. Now they were our freshmen and, I just looked at those two. I'm like, man, these, these guys are amazing. Like they, they want to work so hard. They're soaking up everything I'm saying. Like what a responsibility I have to be great at my job and make sure the information I'm giving them is quality. And that made me work really hard. I wanted to learn more. I started picking the brain of, of every good coach I knew and trying to figure out how I was going to get better at my job and how I was going to provide value to my players and it just kind of kind of went from there. And uh, then we started having some success. We Kevin Penner uh, was on our team at UNLV and was one of the best players in the country. And like I said earlier, we, we made it to the match play at the national championship. And, um, you know, it just it just kind of went from there. I got a little bit of success and and and, um, you know, I just fell in love with coaching. And, and uh, it was just so clear that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I wanted to do it at the highest level. And um, the SEC is that. And uh, so forever grateful that I got this opportunity. And and uh, I, I really am. I, I since I started at Florida, not one day has felt like a job. 
I just, I wake up every day trying to, trying to figure out how we're going to get better. And it's a neat way to go through life. So I'm thinking about fun places to go to school and UNLV seems kind of awesome, right? Like, what is it like at UNLV? Do people go to the strip every night? Are you going to Cirque du Soleil shows and clubs? Or is that what I think it is? But the reality is nothing close to that. My mom had to sit me down and, and make a deal because <laughs> she was very concerned about me going to Las Vegas, which was across the country from Toronto. And mm-hmm. I think the perception from the outside is it's, and it can be, there's no doubt about it. There's, if you want trouble in Las Vegas, you can find it for sure. <laughs> um, but my parents knew how badly I wanted to play on the PGA Tour. That was a lifelong dream. And and uh, we all thought that that, that was going to happen. But she said, look, you can go to UNLV and I trust Coach Knight. Um, but you got to promise me you're going to get your degree. Um, you can't leave early. Um, you can't turn pro. Uh, you have mm. to go to all your classes. You have to get good grades and you have to get me that degree. And I am so grateful uh, for that conversation I had with my mom. And I looked her in the eye and I promised her I'd get it. And she got me through, you know, probably a, a lot of those distractions because um, I, I was never going to let my mom down. My parents have done so much for me to to be at this level and to give me all the opportunities they did. And there was no way I was going to break a promise with her. So I always turn my assignments in, always got my work done. Um, my grades certainly weren't perfect, but uh, they were good enough. At one point, I was an academic All-American, which was pretty special to me. I remember... Um, being able to tell her about that. I thought that was pretty cool. And um, I, I fulfilled my promise. I, I got my degree and it kind of came full circle because when uh, I was in the hiring process at UNLV, literally the first thing on the list requirement for the job was a bachelor's degree mm. in college. You had to have that to be able to get that job. And I, I remember thinking, man, I don't know if I would have done this without mom. So, uh, so thankful for her. And, um, you know, it, it uh the vegas is is definitely um a dicey city at times but there are so many amazing people out there and um i didn't know him at the time but uh the a man named tom jingoli who's uh one of the um executives at konami gaming tom tom is still one of my best friends in this world and kind of took me under my uh, under his wing when i started coaching for coach knight and showed me a lot about leadership and and hard work and and being smart and outthinking people and I remember back Dan Albrecht's uh who was so good to me as a student athlete there and as a uh he was a lawyer at the time and is now a federal judge Hmm. Uh, I was exposed to such amazing people who poured into me and um helped help raise me as a as a young man and Andy Bischel our assistant coach I think about him and how much love he gave us and how hard he pushed us in the gym and at the golf course to be great and held us to a really high standard in the classroom. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of trouble in Vegas for sure, but man, there's so many great people too. And I was exposed to them and, and there's no doubt that I'd be sitting here talking to you today without them. You know, when I was reading into your story, I was really intrigued by the, uh, the part of where about halfway through your tenure coaching at Florida, there was an opportunity for you to fulfill that lifelong dream of playing in a PGA Tour event that coincided with a really low moment for the program and and for you as a coach. So I'm curious if you can sort of share that story and and how this uh, unlikely route to your dream came about. Yeah, so we... um... Uh, we went, we had a really rough year in 2018, 19. We had, we had really built the program up 
Um, we were making, we had made a couple runs at the SEC championship, hadn't, hadn't got to the final yet, but we had some great teams and some great players. Uh, we had won a regional NCAA regional and just had, had some guys struggling with their game. And I remember we missed qualifying for the national championship at, uh, we were out in Washington and our team played really poorly when it mattered the most. And I remember I was so mad. I was so incredibly angry um, at myself, um, probably at our players a little bit, and just <laughs> really disappointed with our performance. And, uh, you know, as a coach, it's your job to get your players ready to play well at the biggest times. And, and we didn't do that that year. And I remember saying, you know what, I'm going to show these guys it's not that hard. And we had obviously had some extra time off. I had three weeks off um, that I did some recruiting in there, but we, we had all this free time. We were supposed to be playing in the national championship and uh, we weren't going to do that. So I, I started practicing a little bit and I said, I'm, I'm going to do something. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to show these guys. It's not that freaking hard. And so started practicing, started feeling good with my game. Uh, went to the local qualifying for the Canadian open and played great. I think I shot 68 or 69 and got that got me into the Monday qualifier for it. And I remember waking up, the morning of the Monday qualifier, my best friend Craig Hosey was caddying for me, and the weather was terrible. It was cold. Um, it was blowing probably 25 to 30 miles an hour, mm. uh, really windy, and it was going to rain. And I said, that's perfect because all these guys <laughs> aren't going to be out here. And yeah, bring it on. Never got beat. So I was excited. And I played great, shot 71, and it was good enough to get the last spot into the Canadian Open, which is my national championship. And probably the tournament that uh, outside of the majors was the biggest deal to me. And um, looking back, the fact that I got to play in that tournament and have that experience, Rory McIlroy was in there uh, in the tournament and I got to see all these, all these great players. And um, it took me nine holes to settle down that, that front nine, I'll never forget how uncomfortable I felt. I just, you know, I wasn't a tournament golfer anymore. And you forget that that's a big part of it is being able to be comfortable out there. And I wasn't, but uh, I settled down after about eight holes and uh, really played well. The last 27, I shot 69 the second round and um, I missed the cut, but not by too much and, and beat some guys out there. And uh, you know, the most special part was my mom and dad and my whole family and best friends back in Toronto got to, got to see it and be a part of it. And it's, you know, definitely experience I'll never forget. I mean, all this sounds, it sounds like the, the script to a movie almost, the way that came full circle, um, which makes me think about the incredible pantheon of golf movies. I'm curious if you have a favorite golf movie. Yeah, there's probably two of them. Um, number one would be Dead Solid Perfect, which is is really old. A lot of hmm. people um, haven't seen it, but it's never a great movie. Never heard of movie. it. No, I'm, I'm a movie guy and I've never heard of it. You'll have to look it up. Yeah. Fantastic movie. And then... Uh, uh, well, actually three. Tin Cup for sure. Mm -hmm. Big Roy McAvoy fan. I, I thought that was awesome. And then uh, Happy Gilmore's fantastic movie. Everyone has to say Happy Gilmore. It's somewhere on that list, right? Um, yeah. Have you have you ever tried the Happy Gilmore technique? And have you been, have you been able to make it work? <laughs> I actually have. And I thought I was going to be good at it because I played hockey forever. Yeah. And it's, yeah. I, I can't do it. I'll, I will whip <laughs> for... Um, <laughs> You know, it's I'm more likely to mess my driver up than hit a good shot when I'm yeah. happy. It's like you go to Top Golf. It says in the sign, "We've all seen the movie. Please don't try it." Doesn't he yes, have to it, say what the movie is? Everyone just knows it never works out well. <laughs> um, what is your favorite course that you've ever played yourself? Augusta National. 
Yeah, Chairman Ridley at Augusta National. He's a he played for the Florida Gator golf team uh, back in the day, and he invited us to go up there in January of 2019, and uh, got to play 18 holes with him and one of our players, Gordon Neal, at the time. And uh, it is Augusta National. I can't even explain it. It is it's heaven on earth. It's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And I remember walking over the hill on number 15 and, and looking down on the green. And there's number six, par three in the background there with with 16 behind it as well. And it's just, it is, it's not even real how special it is. And um, so, yeah, Augusta National is definitely my, my favorite course I've ever played. That's right. That's the answer that most people would hope for, right? Everyone hopes they get to play Augusta. So I'm glad you had a chance to do that. You talked about your family growing up. I'm curious about your family today and, and, and your wife and your kids and, and what life is like for, for all of you in Gainesville. <laughs> well, I appreciate you asking because uh, by the grace of God, um, I got to meet Jessica Rudolph back in 2012, I think. And um, from the first moment we met, we just hit it off. Uh, I remember we just had a such a real and awesome conversation and um we became really close really fast and uh i think we we were together for a year and then got engaged and uh jess is just you know my 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 life really turned around when i met her um you know some good things were happening and i, I know i was working as a coach at unlv but uh i was still a kid and uh, i hadn't grown up yet i hadn't really understood what responsibilities are um, and she brought that into my life. She, she, uh, you know, I had a tough upbringing at times and, um, she had worked three or four jobs at different times at the same time to, to be able to pay her own bills when she was really young. And, um, she just taught me a lot about what it was to be a man. And, um, you know, she was so hardworking and so dedicated to building her life. And I had just always taken for granted, you know, I had a great mom and dad who provided everything for me and I relied so much on them and meeting her and watching how hard she worked. I was like, holy smokes, like she's, she's younger than me and she's 10 times more polished and hardworking and dedicated to what she's doing. Like I got to grow up and I got to, I got to be a man that she, she's proud of. And, um, it just all changed. I met her and, uh, I got better at my job as an assistant and the, absolutely there's no coincidence that I got the Florida job, you know, after being with her for a long time, she just taught me so much about growing up. And, uh, so, uh, she, she took a big shot and she was a big city girl, um, lived in Las Vegas for a long time. And, um, I'm like, Gainesville's really small. Like you have, <laughs> you have no idea, you know, Gainesville's growing a lot since we've been mm -hmm. here. We've almost been here 10 years and it's changed a ton. But uh, when we first got here, it, I mean, it was the definition of a college town. You know, we barely had a mall and um, I just was so worried about her. And um, the neat thing was we got pregnant with our first daughter, Dylan, um, just before we moved out here. And, um, so she became a mom in Gainesville and that exposed her to some really, really amazing people. And, uh, she's changed a lot since we've been here. Um, you know, she's a mom of three. Now we have three beautiful children, Dylan, Sydney, and Rip, um, Rip's our little guy, the, the last piece of the puzzle <laughs> he'll turn, uh, two here in July. But, uh, Jess, Jess met a lot of moms and uh, found this group mops at uh, at our church. And, uh, you know, she's just seen a completely different side of life and she loves it. And uh, Gainesville's just been such a dream come true. I 
actually got uh, got offered the job last about a year ago right now um, to return to Las Vegas and and uh, coach at my alma mater at UNLV. Coach Knight was retiring, hmm. and you know that they they made a pretty substantial offer for us to do that. And Jess and I, you know, we we gave it some serious consideration, and uh, both of us just for some reason Gainesville had, had won over our hearts, and we really believe this is the place we wanted to raise our family and raise our kids. And, um, you know, we, we made the decision to stay and, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for my wife. She's, she's my best friend now and we have a lot of fun together. She, uh, I was actually telling the team yesterday, it's funny you asked this right now, you know, I always try to, to mix the life lessons in, but, uh, you know, I, I just told them yesterday, this SEC championship does not happen without my wife because, um, she really poured into my dream. And when we met, uh, I told her I wanted to be the best college golf coach that there's ever been. And not one day uh, throughout my career and our time together has she ever complained about me spending too much time at the office. And to meet someone like her who just, you know, she just does what's required with the kids and with the family and with the house and never complains about how much time I have to be at the office. And um, I can't put a price on the power of that. She never made me feel guilty for my job and just let me pour into it. And, you know, that, that I, I just know that SEC championship is not won yesterday without her. So I'm forever grateful for her. She's, she's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me without a doubt. And it's, it's nice for me to see how happy she is here and how much our kids love being in Gainesville and the life they get to live. It's, it's just such an amazing place to, uh, to raise a family. Hmm. Final question for you. Uh, I think what's interesting about your schedule is that you win the SEC title and you've got all this momentum and then you have a three week period where you're not competing. Uh, so tell us about what happens next in the postseason and and what's what's potentially on the horizon for this team and and their uh, their potential to win more in the next month or so. Well, it's a very timely question because uh, this is the one I posed to our guys yesterday. We had a team meeting yesterday afternoon. And I said, look, guys, I think we have we have two options here. Um, we can bask in our glory and, and have everyone tell us how good we are and soak up, you know, all the praise that we're getting for winning SEC, which was really hard. And I'm, I'm so proud of you guys. Um, or we can turn the page tonight. And when you guys wake up tomorrow morning, uh, we can try and chase this national championship. And what that looks like is a lot of early mornings, a lot of late nights, a lot of hard work. The weather's about to get really hot, so it's going to be sweat and hard work and fatigue and working out and taking care of your body, eating right, hydrating, all those little things that you got to do, you know, a month and a half out before a championship to win. And unanimously across the board, that's what they wanted. And so Dudley Hart and I are going to coach them hard. Um, we're going to we're going to get after them and uh, see if we can't give this thing a run. So we got S or uh, regionals is in about three weeks. We'll find out where we're going next Wednesday. And uh, we're just going to be working in silence here in Gainesville and around the state. We're, we're really lucky um, being Florida Gators. We get to go play some pretty cool golf courses. So we'll take the guys to some different places and expose the, them to some different looks and challenges. And, um, you know, they're, they want to do something even more special than the SEC. And uh, we know we got to get through regionals first, so uh, we're going to work really hard 
and uh, be prepared to play there. And, and then hopefully we get an opportunity to play in the national championship. And um, we got a very experienced team. We played in the last two national championships at Greyhawk, which is where it'll be hosted out in Scottsdale again this year. So we've got a lot of rounds under our belt at that course. Um, we understand the conditions. We understand what's going to be required of our games. And, uh, you know, if we can get there, I think we're going to have a pretty good chance to be competitive. Well, JC, listen, we really appreciate your time today. Uh, Gator Nation's excited about the success that you're having, and, and, and we hope that it keeps going for you into the NCAAs. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting floridagators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.